to Lord Alfred Douglas, the unpublished portion of De Profundis, Part One. From Oscar Wilde, His Life and Confessions by Frank Harris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The unpublished portion of De Profundis. This is not the whole of the unpublished portion of De Profundis, but that part only which was read out in court and used for the purpose of discrediting Lord Alfred Douglas. Still, it is more than half of the whole in length, and absolutely more than the whole in importance. Nothing of any moment is omitted, except the reiteration of accusations, and just this repetition weakens the effect of the argument, and strengthens the impression of querulous nagging instead of dispassionate statement if the whole were printed oscar wilde would stand worse somewhat more selfish and more vindictive i have commented the document as it stands mainly for the sake of clearness and because it justifies in every particular and almost in every epithet the shadows of the portrait which i have endeavoured to paint in this book curiously enough oscar wilde depicts himself unconsciously in this part of de profundis in a more unfavourable light than that accorded him in my memory i believe mine is the more faithful portrait of him but that is for my readers to determine frank harris new york december nineteen fifteen h m prison reading dear bosie after long and fruitless waiting i have determined to write to you myself as much for your sake as for mine as i would not like to think that i had passed through two long years of imprisonment without ever having received a single line from you or any news or message even except such as gave me pain our ill-fated and most lamentable friendship has ended in ruin and public infamy for me yet the memory of our ancient affection is often with me and the thought that loathing bitterness and contempt should for ever take the place in my heart once held by love is very sad to me and you yourself will i think feel in your heart that to write to me as i lie in the loneliness of prison life is better than to publish my letters without my permission or to dedicate poems to me unasked though the world will know nothing of whatever words of grief or passion of remorse or indifference you may choose to send as your answer or your appeal i have no doubt that in this letter which i have to write of your life and mine of the past and of the future of sweet things changed to bitterness and of bitter things that may be turned to joy there will be much that will wound your vanity to the quick if it prove so read the letter over and over again till it kills your vanity if you find in it something of which you feel that you are unjustly accused remember that one should be grateful that there is any fault of which one can be unjustly accused if there be in it one single passage that brings tears to your eyes weep as we weep in prison where the day no less than the night is set apart for tears 
it is the only thing that can save you if you go complaining to your mother as you did with reference to the scorn of you i displayed in my letter to robbie so that she may flatter and soothe you back into self-complacency or conceit you will be completely lost if you find one false excuse for yourself you will soon find a hundred and be just what you were before do you still say as you said to robbie in your answer that i attribute unworthy motives to you ah you had no motives in life you had appetites merely a motive is an intellectual aim that you were very young when our friendship began your defect was not that you knew so little about life but that you knew so much the morning dawn of boyhood with its delicate bloom its clear pure light its joy of innocence and expectation you had left far behind you with very swift and running feet you had passed from romance to realism the gutter and the things that live in it had begun to fascinate you that was the origin of the trouble in which you sought my aid and i unwisely according to the wisdom of this world out of pity and kindness gave it to you you must read this letter right through though each word may become to you as the fire or knife of the surgeon that makes the delicate flesh burn or bleed remember that the fool to the eyes of the gods and the fool to the eyes of man are very different one who is entirely ignorant of the modes of art in its revelation or the moods of thought in its progress of the pomp of the latin line or the richer music of the voweled greek of tuscan sculpture or elizabethan song may yet be full of the very sweetest wisdom the real fool such as the gods mock or mar is he who does not know himself i was such a one too long you have been such a one too long be so no more do not be afraid the supreme vice is shallowness everything that is realized is right remember also that whatever is misery to you to read is still greater misery to me to set down they have permitted you to see the strange and tragic shapes of life as one sees shadows in a crystal the head of medusa that turns living men to stone you have been allowed to look at in a mirror merely you yourself have walked free among the flowers from me the beautiful world of colour and motion has been taken away i will begin by telling you that i blame myself terribly as i sit in this dark cell in convict clothes a disgraced and ruined man i blame myself in the perturbed and fitful nights of anguish in the long monotonous days of pain it is myself i blame i blame myself for allowing an intellectual friendship a friendship whose primary aim was not the creation and contemplation of beautiful things 
entirely to dominate my life. From the very first there was too wide a gap between us. You had been idle at your school, worse than idle at your university. You did not realise that an artist, and especially such an artist as I am, one, that is to say, the quality of whose work depends on the intensification of personality, requires an intellectual atmosphere, quiet, peace, and solitude. You admired my work when it was finished, you enjoyed the brilliant successes of my first nights, and the brilliant banquets that followed them. You were proud, and quite naturally so, of being the intimate friend of an artist so distinguished. But you could not understand the conditions requisite for the production of artistic work. I am not speaking in phrases of rhetorical exaggeration, but in terms of absolute truth, to actual fact, when I remind you that during the whole time we were together I never wrote one single line. Whether at Torquay, Goring, London, Florence, or elsewhere, my life, as long as you were by my side, was entirely sterile and uncreative, and with but few intervals you were, I regret to say, by my side always. I remember, for instance, in September 93, to select merely one instance out of many, taking a set of chambers, purely in order to work undisturbed, as I had broken my contract with John Hare, for whom I had promised to write a play, and who was pressing me on the subject. During the first week you kept away. We had, not unnaturally indeed, differed on the question of the artistic value of your translation of Salome. So you contented yourself with sending me foolish letters on the subject. In that week I wrote and completed in every detail, as it was ultimately performed, the first act of An Ideal Husband. The second week you returned, and my work practically had to be given up. I arrived at St. James's Place every morning at 11.30 in order to have the opportunity of thinking and writing without the interruption inseparable from my own household, quiet and peaceful as that household was. But the attempt was vain. At twelve o'clock you drove up and stayed smoking cigarettes and chattering till one-thirty, when I had to take you out to luncheon at the Café Royal or the Barclay. Luncheon, with its liqueurs, lasted usually till three-thirty. For an hour you retired to White's. At tea-time you appeared again and stayed till it was time to dress for dinner. You dined with me either at the Savoy or at Tite Street. We did not separate as a rule till after midnight, as supper at Willis's had to wind up the entrancing day. That was my life for those three months, every single day, except during the four days when you went abroad. I then, of course, had to go over to Calais to fetch you back. For one of my nature and temperament, it was a position at once grotesque and tragic. You surely must realise that now. You must see now that your incapacity of being alone, your nature so 
exigent in its persistent claim on the attention and time of others your lack of any power of sustained intellectual concentration the unfortunate accident for i like to think it was no more that you had not been able to acquire the oxford temper in intellectual matters never i mean been one who could play gracefully with ideas but had arrived at violence of opinion merely that all these things combined with the fact that your desires and your interests were in life not in art were as destructive to your own progress in culture as they were to my work as an artist when i compare my friendship with you to my friendship with still younger men as john gray and pierre louis i feel ashamed my real life my higher life was with them and such as they of the appalling results of my friendship with you i don't speak at present i am thinking merely of its quality while it lasted it was intellectually degrading to me you had the rudiments of an artistic temperament in its germ but i met you either too late or too soon i don't know which when you were away i was all right the moment in the early december of the year to which i have been alluding i had succeeded in inducing your mother to send you out of england i collected again the torn and ravelled web of my imagination got my life back into my own hands and not merely finished the three remaining acts of the ideal husband but conceived and had almost completed two other plays of a completely different type the florentine tragedy and la sainte courtesane when suddenly unbidden unwelcome and under circumstances fatal to my happiness you returned the two works left then imperfect i was unable to take up again the mood that created them i could not recover you now having yourself published a volume of verse will be able to recognize the truth of everything i have said here whether you can or not it remains as a hideous truth in the very heart of our friendship while you were with me you were the absolute ruin of my art and in allowing you to stand persistently between art and myself i give to myself shame and blame in the fullest degree you couldn't appreciate you couldn't know you couldn't understand i had no right to expect it of you at all your interests were merely in your meals and moods your desires were simply for amusements for ordinary or less ordinary pleasures they were what your temperament needed or thought it needed for the moment i should have forbidden you my house and my chambers except when i specially invited you i blame myself without reserve for my weakness it was merely weakness one half hour with art is always more to me than a cycle with you nothing really at any period of my life was ever of the smallest importance to me compared with art 
but in the case of an artist weakness is nothing less than a crime when it is a weakness that paralyses the imagination i blame myself for having allowed you to bring me to utter and discreditable financial ruin i remember one morning in the early october of ninety two sitting in the yellowing woods at brecknell with your mother at that time i knew very little of your real nature i had stayed from a saturday to monday with you at oxford you had stayed with me at cromer for ten days and played golf the conversation turned on you and your mother began to speak to me about your character she told me of your two chief faults your vanity and your being as she termed it all wrong about money i have a distinct recollection of how i laughed i had no idea that the first would bring me to prison and the second to bankruptcy i thought vanity a sort of graceful flower for a young man to wear as for extravagance the virtues of prudence and thrift were not in my own nature or my own race but before our friendship was one month older i began to see what your mother really meant your insistence on a life of reckless profusion your incessant demands for money your claim that all your pleasures should be paid for by me whether i was with you or not brought me after some time into serious monetary difficulties and what made the extravagance to me at any rate so monotonously uninteresting as your persistent grasp on my life grew stronger and stronger was that the money was spent on little more than the pleasures of eating drinking and the like now and then it is a joy to have one's table red with wine and roses but you outstripped all taste and temperance you demanded without grace and received without thanks you grew to think that you had a sort of right to live at my expense and in a profuse luxury to which you had never been accustomed and which for that reason made your appetites all the more keen and at the end if you lost money gambling in some algiers casino you simply telegraphed next morning to me in london to lodge the amount of your losses to your account at your bank and gave the matter no further thought of any kind when i tell you that between the autumn of eighteen ninety two and the date of my imprisonment i spent with you and on you more than five thousand pounds in actual money irrespective of the bills i incurred you will have some idea of the sort of life on which you insisted do you think i exaggerate my ordinary expenses with you for an ordinary day in london for luncheon dinner supper amusements hansoms and the rest of it ranged from twelve to twenty pounds and the week's expenses were naturally in proportion and ranged from eighty pounds to a hundred and thirty pounds for our three months at goring my expenses rent of course included were one thousand three hundred and forty pounds step by step with the bankruptcy receiver i had to go over every item of my life it was horrible 
plain living and high thinking was of course an ideal you could not at that time have appreciated but such an extravagance was a disgrace to both of us one of the most delightful dinners i remember ever having had is one robbie and i had together in a little soho cafe which cost about as many shillings as my dinners to you used to cost pounds out of my dinner with robbie came the first and best of all my dialogues idea title treatment mode everything was struck out at a three franc fifty centime table d'hote out of the reckless dinners with you nothing remains but the memory that too much was eaten and too much was drunk and my yielding to your demands was bad for you you know that now it made you grasping often at times not a little unscrupulous ungracious always there was on far too many occasions too little joy or privilege in being your host you forgot i will not say the formal courtesy of thanks for formal courtesies will strain a close friendship but simply the grace of sweet companionship the charm of pleasant conversation and all those gentle humanities that make life lovely and are an accompaniment to life as music might be keeping things in tune and filling with melody the harsh or silent places and though it may seem strange to you that one in the terrible position in which i am situated should find a difference between one disgrace and another still i frankly admit that the folly of throwing away all this money on you and letting you squander my fortune to your own hurt as well as to mine gives to me and in my eyes a note of common profligacy to my bankruptcy that makes me doubly ashamed of it i was made for other things but most of all i blame myself for the entire ethical degradation i allowed you to bring on me the basis of character is will-power and my will-power became absolutely subject to yours it sounds a grotesque thing to say but it is none the less true those incessant scenes that seemed to be almost physically necessary to you and in which your mind and body grew distorted and you became a thing as terrible to look at as to listen to that dreadful mania you inherit from your father the mania for writing revolting and loathsome letters your entire lack of any control over your emotions as displayed in your long resentful moods of sullen silence no less than in the sudden fits of almost epileptic rage all these things in reference to which one of my letters to you left by you lying about in the savoy or some other hotel and so produced in court by your father's counsel contained an entreaty not devoid of pathos had you at that time been able to recognise pathos either in its elements or its expression these i say were the origin and causes of my fatal yielding to you in your daily increasing demands you wore me out 
it was the triumph of the smaller over the bigger nature it was the case of that tyranny of the weak over the strong which somewhere in one of my plays i describe as being the only tyranny that lasts and it was inevitable in every relation of life with others one has to find some moyen de vivre i had always thought that my giving up to you in small things meant nothing that when a great moment arrived i could myself reassert my will-power in its natural superiority it was not so at the great moment my will-power completely failed me in life there is really no great or small thing all things are of equal value and of equal size my habit due to indifference chiefly at first of giving up to you in everything had become insensibly a real part of my nature without my knowing it it had stereotyped my temperament to one permanent and fatal mood that is why in the subtle epilogue to the first edition of his essays pater says that failure is to form habits when he said it the dull oxford people thought the phrase a mere wilful inversion of the somewhat wearisome text of aristotelian ethics but there is a wonderful and terrible truth hidden in it i had allowed you to sap my strength of character and to me the formation of a habit had proved to be not failure merely but ruin ethically you had been even still more destructive to me than you had been artistically the warrant once granted your will of course directed everything at a time when i should have been in london taking wise counsel and calmly considering the hideous trap in which i had allowed myself to be caught the booby trap as your father calls it to the present day you insisted on my taking you to monte carlo of all revolting places on god's earth that all day and all night as well you might gamble as long as the casino remained open as for me baccarat having no charms for me i was left alone outside by myself you refused to discuss even for five minutes the position to which you and your father had brought me my business was merely to pay your hotel expenses and your losses the slightest allusion to the ordeal awaiting me was regarded as a bore a new brand of champagne that was recommended to us had more interest for you on our return to london those of my friends who really desired my welfare implored me to retire abroad and not to face an impossible trial you imputed mean motives to them for giving such advice and cowardice to me for listening to it you forced me to stay to brazen it out if possible in the box by absurd and silly perjuries at the end of course i was arrested and your father became the hero of the hour as far as i can make out i ended my friendship with you every three months regularly 
and each time that i did so you managed by means of entreaties telegrams letters the interposition of your friends the interposition of mine and the like to induce me to allow you back but the froth and folly of our life grew often very wearisome to me it was only in the mire that we met and fascinating terribly fascinating though the one topic round which your talk invariably centred was still at the end it became quite monotonous to me i was often bored to death by it and accepted it as i accepted your passion for music halls or your mania for absurd extravagance in eating and drinking or any other of your to me less attractive characteristics as a thing that is to say that one simply had to put up with a part of the high price one had to pay for knowing you when you came one monday evening to my rooms accompanied by two of your friends i found myself actually flying abroad next morning to escape from you giving my family some absurd reason for my sudden departure and leaving a false address with my servant for fear you might follow me by the next train our friendship had always been a source of distress to my wife not merely because she had never liked you personally but because she saw how your continual companionship altered me and not for the better you started without delay for paris sending me passionate telegrams on the road to beg me to see you at once at any rate i declined you arrived in paris late on a saturday night and found a brief letter from me waiting for you at your hotel stating that i would not see you next morning i received in tite street a telegram of some ten or eleven pages in length from you you stated in it that no matter what you had done to me you could not believe that i would absolutely decline to see you you reminded me that for the sake of seeing me even for one hour you had travelled six days and six nights across europe without stopping once on the way you made what i must admit was a most pathetic appeal and ended with what seemed to me a threat of suicide and one not thinly veiled you had yourself often told me how many of your race there had been who had stained their hands in their own blood your uncle certainly your grandfather possibly many others in the mad bad line from which you come pity my old affection for you regard for your mother to whom your death under such dreadful circumstances would have been a blow almost too great for her to bear the horror of the idea that so young a life and one that amidst all its ugly faults had still promise of beauty in it should come to so revolting an end mere humanity itself all these if excuses be necessary must serve as an excuse for consenting to accord you one last interview when i arrived in paris your tears breaking out again and again all through the evening 
and falling over your cheeks like rain as we sat at dinner first at voisines at supper at pilard's afterwards the unfeigned joy you evinced at seeing me holding my hand whenever you could as though you were a gentle and penitent child your contrition so simple and sincere at the moment made me consent to renew our friendship two days after we had returned to london your father saw you having luncheon with me at the cafe royal joined my table drank of my wine and that afternoon through a letter addressed to you began his first attack on me end of section